how should I intro you? Corporate Lord, dropout, come comedian, um, with Holocaust surviving grandparents, but raised as a Buddhist. Yes. Uh, a twin who plays the banjo and uh, probably the smartest comedian in Australia. Like, and yes. that's not having a go at your if competition. If only I was as funny as I was smart, I'd, <laughs> I'd run the world. <laughs> um, how do you like to be introed when you're being interviewed for stuff? I always find it interesting how I am introed, really. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a particular thing I can tell when journalists have only read my online bio because right. there's a joke I drop in to my bio online where I say I'm a terrible banjo player. Uh, and if they mention that, I know that they haven't gone past my bio. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little it's a trick. Bad, it's a trap. Does it say I'm a good friend or a bad friend that I didn't read your bio? It's a good friend because oh, you actually know me. I could me. just introduce you as one of my favourite people. Yes. But... I wouldn't want to leave you with a sense of um, what do I have to do to improve in the ranks of Jared's favourite people. <laughs> yeah, my you... absolute favourite. I've got to, got to fight. I'm very competitive, Jared. Now I have to either murder my competition or become a better person. <laughs> and, and that's why you'll never meet my other friends. That's... <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. I don't know how I want to be introduced. Maybe um, I like ideas. I don't know if mm. there's a kind of person that you can describe, there's a, if there's a word for that, an idea, interested person, an idea, not quite a fetishist, but an idea obsessive. I like, nice. I like thoughts and ideas. And I'd quote the castle, but it's too gender exclusive and then refers to, look, Dad, I dug a hole, which isn't what we're going for mm. at all. Um, but it's true, and it's true of your comedy as well, that... Um, uh, you get the instant satisfaction of a laugh and then there's a slow burn of thinking of your comedy afterwards where you're like, damn, that was really clever. That was, that was, um, which not everybody goes in for, um, <laughs> particularly yeah, there are some when you're trying who... to sell out a comedy um, show. But I deeply appreciate, um, and I know that's true of you uh, as a person as well, I'm an acquired taste because for many comedians, um, com comedy purists maybe, the laughs are the end. Mm. The, the, the comedy is the means, the laughs is, are the end. For me, the comedy is a means to another end. It's a sugar coating over an idea that, other pe that people might not otherwise want to engage with or think to engage with. So it's a, all, my comedy is, is a trick more than anything else. <laughs> and is that why you have to be excessively amazing to get away with it? You have to be good enough that people don't resent it, yes. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I'm quite there yet. And even when I get there, then I always I always have this weird ambition to do something that's slightly beyond my skill level. Yeah. Um, which means that, you know, at least 50% of what I do fails. But... Some of your comedy has been... Um, uh, more than was it savage that um, is that where you, you talked about the reality of that period of your life yes and um, yeah I, I just encourage people to to look that up I'm, I'm guessing that's not a thing that you really want to tour after doing that in fact I am sort of touring it I'm doing the trilogy which is Savage the Resistance and Empire Savage which I wrote because I couldn't write anything else at that time in yeah. my life and the resistance is sort of an answer to Savage the questions that Savage raised for me about my own comedy um, the idea that well of course it was moving because it's something that everybody can relate to the resistance I wanted to do a show that proved that I could write a show that was funny but also emotionally moving but about something that people couldn't relate to, something that is very mm. unique to my upbringing. And then Empire is about um, quantum physics and villainy and they're all this thread. <laughs> they, they all tie this that one. Old combo. Yeah, they that. tie this one long story about my difficulties with conflict mm. uh, together and I've just recorded it for the ABC and it's coming out as a podcast in the next month or so. Which is exciting. Is that the Trolls? Uh, no, that's different. Troll Play is a comedy podcast about dealing with trolls online. Uh, the, the trilogy will just be... Uh, straight. Straight up 
three hours of comedy mm. and a little bit of me talking about the comedy in between. And uh, I'm doing a one-off of that trilogy again in London and one in Edinburgh. It's not something I could do every night. Yeah, sure. Because it's three separate solo hours. Well, maybe we should mention for people your podcast because there's Tea with Alice, which is brilliant. And can I mention that you're paying the rent or do I have to edit that out? <laughs> no, with... you can. I, I have a Patreon, so people who listen to Tea with Alice and want to support me continuing to do that. Uh, which is amazing. Yeah. But um, with a podcast, you're now able to earn... 15 minutes of what you would have earned as a corporate lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately that's a, a deeply unpleasant truth, but I um, I like it very much. I, it's, I did Tea with Alice as an experiment to see what would happen if I wasn't doing anything for anybody else. So it mm. wasn't for a particular audience, it wasn't to a particular brief, it was just to see what would happen if I was just sort of let float in free space with no mm. gravity. And it's just talking about difficult ideas because apparently that's what I'm obsessed with. Mm. And through it, I've sort of discovered maybe my life work, which is to make a safe space for people to talk about uncomfortable things and to wrestle with ideas and to break down this really nasty tribalism that's mm. happening now where people go into arguments so certain of what they think and so certain of what side they're allied with that they don't even think through what they're saying. Yeah. They just attach to a whole raft of ideology. Team. Yep. And so as Tea with Alice has come along in this last, it's probably five years now. Um, oh, no, it's three years. But as that's happened, the tribalism has risen and risen in society, so mm. it's becoming more and more, I think, more and more relevant mm. to do what I do, I hope. Yeah, and I always find it surprising who you get on like um, such a diverse uh, group of people. Um, I was so pleased when you had Lisa Sharon Harper on, but um, oh, yeah, other friends like... Yeah, she was a like fantastic guest. Will Anderson and... Um, but also your brother. They're, yes. They've been some of my favourite. It's the kind of twin tea with Alice breakdowns. Um, and uh, I feel like I have more a sense of you after listening to you banter with your brother, so that's Yeah, I fun. do. I've, I've done one with, uh, a couple with my brother, a couple with my dad as well. Mm. I did one with my mum before she died and I'm, mm. I wish I had done more, but mm. uh, yeah, I try, I try to put that up once a year, usually around the anniversary of her death. Um, wow. Just, I don't know, I think it's a nice thing yeah. to have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Talking about difficult conversations, the Bible. How was that for a segue? It's very to... subtle, very smooth, very yeah. natural. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why um, do you think the Bible is a difficult conversation? Because it's a difficult book. Mm -hmm. um, because what isn't edited out, it's horrible propaganda. Mm -hmm. Like it, it barely functions as propaganda. There, there are clearly parts that. Um, uh, fanfare for certain kings but it has more takedowns than it has build up um it's like a, it's like a confession rather than a all the stuff that is problematic um is in there and has to be worked with it's as much a if Jung is right and 90% of the shadow is gold <laughs> there's a lot of gold there because it's all all in there. Yeah, I've always thought of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of as a as an artist or as someone who creates work, it is what happens when a work is created by committee. <laughs> it's like there's so many studio notes in there, yeah, man. The original right. artist's vision is so <laughs> distorted by like, oh, and then we need this, and then, oh, what about this, and what about a love story, and why don't we have more explosions? <laughs> like it's that kind of thing where you yep. can see... I mean, I imagine as a religious person, you can see quite clearly what the vision is. Almost which vision? Yeah. And so you have to, um, I mean, the genius of the Jewish imagination is it's a wrestle. So one of the central motifs even is a, um, is a response to God that isn't surrender, but is literally like MMA. Yeah. Um, so Jacob's wrestle with the angel and then walking differently 
uh, he's not a good guy. Um, the angel is ambiguous as well. And it's um, welcome to the wrestle. And it's very hard to be an objective. It almost asks you to, to choose, are you going to go down with creation or empire? Which, which part of, um, and all the nuances of that as well. So, um, yeah, it's a... Well, I do really like the, um, the layout of the Torah, hmm. where you have, you know, the central text and then you have the discourses around the text hmm. and arguments around the text. I really like that as a way of approaching uh, religion as argument. And that yeah. is, as you say, like very much part of the Jewish temperament. My granny used to say, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it, it sort of, you know, plays through a lot of our other, our other social um, structures that I think are good, like, you know, the adversarial system of law, mm. the idea that you can find the truth better through argument than through investigation, because mm. investigation will always be in some way at least a little biased by your perspective sure. and your own desire to find a particular outcome. Even with science, you have that, and it's when science is best is when it's adversarial. It's when tr people are trying to disprove one another's theories. Mm. And when it's at its worst is when you're trying to find a particular outcome in order to get a grant so that you can get a better <laughs> position at a university. And then you'll find, consciously or unconsciously, your data tends to skew in the mm. way that you want it to skew. Um, and you'll discard outliers. Mm. More outliers get discarded and discarded. And you never bring the outliers into your understanding. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I do like that adversarial side. Do you remember when you first encountered the Jewish and Christian scriptures? Or did that happen in two parts for you? Was it um, Jewish scriptures separate from Christian scriptures? Well, so I guess I encountered the Jewish scriptures when a distant cousin got bar mitzvahed. Uh -huh. uh, Good party? Yeah, I was probably five or something, didn't really understand much about what was going on. Uh, there's again the classic Jewish joke of at last I am a fountain pen because um, <laughs> the bar mitzvah becomes this whole thing of like oh now you're a real man and you have all these presents and um, you have to read out from the Torah and all of yeah. that um, I don't think I really encountered that as scripture I encountered that as a party mm. um, and a performance of sorts Yeah. Uh, but when I was about 11 or 12 I think when I started so that's interesting, Alice. Is, is that because for you, um, uh, being an intellectual, academic type, that the scriptures should be something that is separate from a party or a um, <laughs> well? I mean, more that I was five and I didn't understand it as scripture. I just sure. understood it as meeting all these relatives that I hadn't met, and then there was like dancing to Michael Jackson songs, and it was you know. <laughs> Like, like, I don't, it was sort of blurred for me. When I first encountered scripture as scripture, I was 11 or 12, starting to sort of question my Buddhist upbringing, my doctrines of Buddhist upbringing, as something other than this is the way the world is, hmm. as it had been explained to me. So, but is it? Or, but, or isn't. Yeah, or this Buddhist is the world the way. Yes. Uh, the sound of two one hands clapping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One hand each clapping. Um, so we were, I was, I spoke to my dad about it, you know, but what is this, this whole idea? Is it, is it not a nihilistic idea that you should be seeking the absence of self, that, that you don't want extremes of sadness, but that in order to avoid extremes of sadness, you also avoid extremes of happiness because uh, happiness leads to attachment and then craving and fear of loss and all of that stuff. Um, so talking to my dad about that and he said... Which is a heavy trip for like 11, 12-year-old, right? Where most kids are like, uh, I have acne and yeah. do they like me? And It uh, was about the same time as I found out that my mum had MS. And wow. I, when I say found out, I mean really understood it, was sure. really explained what was going on with her. And not just that she had these idiosyncrasies, that she didn't like loud noises and that she had lots of naps. Um, but that there was something really wrong and what was wrong was this um, decay, this, this loss of, of self, of, of ability, of physical capacity and mental capacity that was happening and was going to keep happening. Yeah. So that was a big 
moment for me. And dad said, read, here's the Bible, here's the Torah, here's the Quran, here's the Abhidhamma, which is the, I guess, the very academic version of the Buddhist text. So the Buddha was a teacher more than anything else. He he taught, so he gave these discourses, which are much more layperson, mm. and he fitted the discourse to the people he was speaking to, and he used analogies that they would understand, and he taught them the parts of the Dharma that he thought they would be able to understand. So that stuff is much more accessible. The Abhidhamma is very technical, mm. and it's sort of very conditional. It starts from first principles and goes up from there. It's an incredibly difficult text, but nice if you like philosophy. Um, <laughs> So he said, read all of these and then tell me what you think. And I don't know how much that was a trick because, of course, the Buddhist stuff made more sense to me Mm. at that time because I think in part because that's what I'd been brought up with and so it Mm. sort of jived with my understanding of the world. But I did read the other texts and had opinions about them and found them good and interesting in different ways. I mean, the Torah is great because it's that real old school, you know, very uh, weighty religion. It's sort hmm. of very, you know, all the the history and the the. It's so old fashioned. It's such it's such a historical document. Hmm. Thousands of years, these people yeah. and the ways that they managed themselves and looked after themselves. And the Quran is its own incredible text and very very clearly placed in its historical context. It's, yep. a, it's a document for managing an army yep. is what it's for. That's what it's for. It's for managing people who are in power and in control and running an army. And the Bible is is for it's for slaves. Yeah. It's, it's a document that's that really is, is to help people who don't have power, yeah. which is one of, I think, the problems for the Christian Um, organized Christian religion when it has too much power it doesn't really know how to manage it it doesn't have rules and instructions for how to manage it we don't have sacred texts for this we (laughs) We don't have rules for this we're meant to be poor we're meant to be this is very good for us when we're poor and it's Mm. and in the opposite way the Quran is not a great text for people who are not in power because it is for people who are in power Mm. it doesn't have a lot of rules for people who are suffering or struggling or oppressed it's it's for the bosses and mm. um, so you know where it becomes toxic in that religious side it's when people are struggling to regain the power that they feel entitled to because the text speaks to them as though they are in power and should be in power and are entitled yeah. to power and if you don't have power there's no there's no rules that really apply you have to twist the rules to apply and inversely um Christianity becomes toxic when it does have... Yeah, because then you have to twist these rules. You can't interpret the rule against having money and power. Oh, you'd be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) You should watch some early morning Sunday TV and you... (laughs) Exactly, but you have to to twist it to make any sense and then once you've done that, you lose the integrity of the text. It's all about your own desire, what you want to get from the text and and Mm. that... If you want to be ruled by a text, you can't do that. Mm. You have to interpret it in good faith rather than mm. in a desire to justify your own existing opinions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's probably my first encounter with scripture. And w- would you have articulated it like that at the time with your dad as you're processing um, the reality of what's going on? I probably wouldn't have articulated it as clearly. Mm. I don't think I understood the historical contexts as much. I was more interested in, like, I was, you know, my mum was a poet. I was interested in the different language and the different ways that they spoke and, mm. the, and the sort of uh, solemnity and, and um, ceremony that was built into them. I yeah. thought that was sort of beautiful and elegant, but I did read them as, um, as works rather mm. than as um, divinely inspired, sure. yeah. I think. And being 
raised by a poet in a home where um, music was celebrated, mm. uh, uh, but so were the, the sciences and aptitude around those things. Are there things that stayed with you or struck you? Were there parts of um, what Christians refer to as like the first or the Old Testament and the New Testament that um, were there parts of um, uh, beauty or horror that stood out for you? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, the poetry of the Quran really stuck with me. The Old Testament, like I said, all of the all the all of the lists and the obsession with, I mean, sort of accuracy on one hand and mm. then flights of fancy on the other, mm. and with the New Testament. I thought it was really sad. <laughs> I thought it was really sad. I thought, as somebody who was not brought up believing in God, the moment when Jesus is on the cross and he says, uh, Daddy, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Like the, the translation of what he says is, is not Father, it's... Abba, yeah. Yeah, it's Daddy. Yeah. Why have you forsaken me? As someone who didn't believe in God, I thought that was so sad. I thought I felt like that was a moment of realizing that he'd been tricked or fooled or something like that. I read it as a tragedy at that time. Yeah. That was just this terrible suffering and ending with disillusionment. Yeah. Um, and I think my first encounters with Christian iconography were similar, just mm. horrifying, so, so much focus on pain and suffering and torture. I read it as as a terribly sad religion, I think. Yeah, and certainly Western iconography that's so apparent, like it's it's one of the marked differences of Eastern icons um, is that it's shot through with resurrection, but the West particularly um, uh, after, yeah, right through the Renaissance and um, into the Enlightenment, the, the focus upon suffering and a, a way to articulate it through religious imagery is is fascinating. Yeah, it felt like a, um, what do they call it? There's a word for it and it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, it felt like Teeth. a cognitive dissonance. And I spoke about this in Savage, that, that somehow by focusing on this pain, there was a sense of, awe and transcendental astonishment that mm. I couldn't see the link between those two states. They seemed like two incompatible states that were being held in suspension and the kind of the, um, the tension between those two points that couldn't be reconciled was what I felt like provided the engine for a lot of Christian drive. Yeah, yeah, and no, that's fascinating. There was a, um, I can't remember the artist's name, but um, he had a, a series um, where he showed uh, a classical, more Chinese image of um, the Buddha um, laughing. And as you stepped away, what you saw was a Renaissance Western European Jesus being crucified. But as he came up close to it, it was the Buddha laughing. And then uh, on the opposite side of the wall in the gallery was um, the opposite, was um, Christ being uh, crucified, this classic European depiction. And then you walk away and it was um, uh, this classical Chinese laughing. And it was almost the dialogue between the two. Um, as a child in the midst of... Uh, having this phenomenal grandmother that you've told me about in the past and um, her um, in incredible um, uh, compassion for hurting people and her own experience of being a Holocaust survivor, yet growing up Buddhist, mm. reading these texts, were the Jewish Christian scriptures, did they strike you as something that was liberating, something that was oppressive, something that was other? Um, how how did you encounter them then and how do you think about them now? I think because I was distant from them, I didn't feel them as oppressive. I didn't feel a desire to rebel against them. I mm. thought they were interesting. I know for my father, for my grandmother, her relationship with faith was 
a struggle mm. because how can you believe in God when your family is murdered? Yeah. How can you have faith? But also her Judaism was important to her identity because giving it up would mean that Hitler had won. Yeah. So for her, I don't know whether her incredible charity came out of her religious upbringing or not. She was brought up as a secular Jew in that intellectual secular Jewish tradition where they would go to synagogue on high holidays and, you know, there was culturally Jewish more than... um, more than orthodox. Mm. Um, and she would she would go out on a Friday night and find a sex worker and bring her home for dinner. Mm. She would pick up stray dogs in the street. She would feed the possums. She would, if she saw a mother shouting at her child, she'd interfere. She was that kind of person. She mm. would send my dad and his brother and sister out uh, at dinner time to see if there was anyone hungry in the street to bring them in. Mm. Um, that was her practice and her habit and how much of that was an empathy born out of having suffered and how much of that was a religious, I don't, I never know, I never yeah. knew. It made her happy to do it. Yeah. Um, and it was part of her character and her personality. Um so I didn't see as much as that was... I don't think I even thought of that as religious until mm. now about. But as much as it was, then it's obviously a good thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? I think, I think... I love this story um, about her response to the fire. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's, an, that's a joke that I tell because I think it's a good illustration of her character and also because I think it's a good counter-argument to the current trends in um, word policing where people will will not look to context and they won't look to the fact scenario before they judge someone for the words that they use. Mm. Some of the best people I've known have made the darkest, most brutal, most unacceptable jokes. Mm. You know, it's the aid workers who will say horrendously racist things. Like, that's an unfortunate truth. And, of course, words are important, but they are not more important than action. Yeah. And whether you can balance them out against each other or not, I don't know. Or whether they just exist together and you have, you know this many oranges and this many apples. I don't, I don't know, but my granny certainly didn't watch her language <laughs> when she spoke about other people, mm. but she was always very generous. She would sort of say the most um, she, stereotypical, you know, she'd stereotype people, she'd say this about that race or this about this type of person, but any human being that she met face to face she treated with incredible kindness and generosity and humanity Mm. so it meant that the words really meant nothing you know she loved a drama she loved a fight she loved saying you know the Greeks are like this (laughs) but if she met a Greek person in the street she would treat them like a human person Mm. and she wouldn't apply that judgment to them it the words really meant nothing for her. Mm. And it was almost like she would forget or that that person, even though they were a Greek person, wasn't that. It was like there was, a, it was two different planes of existence for yeah. her. Yeah. Human beings and then fun games that you played with words. Yeah. Um, Which is fascinating for me, particularly discussing sacred scriptures because um, even in scholarship there are trends of doing just that as well and uh, there are different types of ways of doing that some of which are um, are profound and nuanced and actually bring and others can just be a um, transposing of uh, word games uh, on, on top of text and actually missing like the number of times where um, uh, middle-class, socially mobile, white, first-world, so to speak, 
people talk about, oh, I'm deeply disturbed by, you know, Pharaoh's armies and that they were, and, you know, this is a, a sacred text that gets read, but where's our compassion for, you know, Pharaoh's soldiers that were drowned in the Red Sea while the slaves passed through. And it's this, why do we so easily identify with those under Pharaoh's command and feel so little for the slaves that actually animate our lives now? Mm. Like, why is it um, that we can go in and we can con- let let our situation critique scriptures instead of letting scriptures actually critique our situation and why is it that we find it easier to identify with pharaoh in the courts of power than slaves making bricks and well i always i had a joke in empire about that about how people nowadays are feel we are so distant from that time that we you know we can't imagine that other human beings like us at a different time in history would have had slaves in their homes, that you would have had a slave in your house. You'd wake up and there'd be your slave in your house. And, you know, how could these people not have the common humanity and decency to keep slaves in sweatshops in different countries where we don't have to look at them? (laughs) Yeah, totally. We have have slaves. We have servants. We have the gig economy. You have your driver. You have your cleaner. You have... All of these things exist. Yeah. You just outsource the moral responsibility to the market. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if, at least if you had a, a slave in your home and they got sick, you'd have to give them a day off. You know, capitalism doesn't have that kind of mercy. Yeah. If they don't or work, proximity. they die. Yeah, you yeah. don't have the, the human proximity yeah everything that you're describing in terms of your grandmother like that proximity to people and willingness to uh be hospitable and invite people in and um all the opportunities to cut through how common patterns of speech um maybe it's because people feel it's the only thing they've got agency around that those games are so important Yes, I agree. I think a lot of our lives now are lived online and words can feel like action. Mm. So if you, and and, I mean, this is not relevant necessarily to the Bible, but I'm sure you can make it relevant to the Bible. But uh, it's, um, let me think of how to articulate this. You'll see this a lot when people are addressing slower words, and I understand that it sounds like I'm arguing for hate speech, but when people talk about uh, hate terms, slow words as being unacceptable, a good example would be the movement away from uh, a tranny being a word that was used sort of quite openly and generally and used by people who were either cross-dressers or trans, um, to that being seen as a hate term. Whenever you see that argument play out, you can't use this word, it immediately goes to, why can't I use this word? Because people are killed. People are murdered by people who use this word. There is a complete elision of the spectrum between words and action, that there are people who would say that even in a hateful way, who would never lay a violent hand on another human being. If you close that distance between speech and violence, then by stopping speech, you feel like you're saving a life. Mm. And it's a very bad argument because the people who use that word in either an ignorant or a lighthearted way, or even in a hateful way, they know that they're not murderers. So you're telling them that they are a thing or, you know, analogous to a thing or indistinguishable from a thing that they absolutely for a fact know they are not. Mm. So it's a, it's a bad argument mm. because there's a counterexample in every individual who you accuse of using this murderous language. And I think that happens too much now. It makes you feel very powerful. And in terms of 
comedy in Australia and elsewhere, I mean, this stuff is really hot, right? Like this is part of the whole um, ongoing debate that comedians are having amongst themselves. Um, yeah, I was quoted um, on the Herald Sun arguing um, in a it was a, it was misquoted. I was half quoted. I was selectively quoted in an <laughs> argument, um, which was talking about how Rodney Rood said that PC speech is ruining comedy, and I think somebody took a sentence maybe from my podcast, but they didn't interview me. So it's from some other body of work that I've done where I said, I think there is a restrictive environment in universities now that people know what they can say and what they can't say. And then I probably went on to say something more nuanced than that. Uh, So that was in the morning. That came out in the morning. In the afternoon, I was quoted on the project saying exactly the opposite. Oh, wow. (laughs) Saying, you know, things aren't funny if people don't think that they're funny. And times change and what's acceptable changes and comedy of all art forms deals with what is relevant now and PC speech is the least of things that has changed over time. Things that are acceptable to say have changed in every in every way. Well, there you go. That's the most biblical thing I've heard from you. You're arguing with yourself in public. In That's public, yes. <laughs> just like the Bible. Amazing. Well, this is, a, yeah, I stand, I stand by it. <laughs> but was it Groucho Marx? Uh, these are my opinions, and if you don't like it, I have others. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was a Jew. It was a that's a proper Jewish sentence right there. <laughs> but he got in trouble for break, crossing the line, hmm. right? He was a very quick, quick talker, quick thinker, maybe a little too quick to talk. Hmm. And he had a um, talk show, a live talk show, where he would talk to the audience. Do you know this story? This is when he got pulled off the air. No. So he had this talk show and uh, he asked a woman to come out of the audience and talk to him. And he said, uh, Madam, what do you do? And she said, I'm a housewife. He said, do you have children? She said, I have 13 children. He said, why? And she said, I love my husband. And he said, I love my cigars, but even I take them out of my mouth sometimes. (laughs) And it went to ad break and never came back on it. Oh, really? Some executive was watching it. and like, But you see wow. what I mean? Times change at that time. That was far across the line. That was completely unacceptable speech. It was, you know, mm. beyond the pale. Mm. Things change. What you're allowed to say changes. What you can say, what's funny changes. And, and I mean, some things are timeless. Man slipping on a banana skill <laughs> since the dawn of time till the end of time will be funny. <laughs> Which, like, context is so important. And I think some of these conversations, I mean, we're, we're on the side of the city right now. Where are we? Not we're where I went. Subiaco. Yeah, I went to Astor, but we're actually in the Regal Theatre out the back um, somewhere uh, doing this interview. And on this side of town, these conversations sound very different on my side of town. Mm-hmm. So last night at First Home Project um, had... Uh, a fella who's a local, who lives locally, who used several racist terms while coming alongside and helping the refugees that I live with. Mm-hmm. Um, the context, it, like, and I, like, I don't speak that way. I don't think it's acceptable. I don't think, but um, in terms of the people I live with who have fled war and all the rest, they love this guy because he loves them and is always there for them and says shocking things. And I'm not Sounds making, like my granny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not making excuses for that. Or, but I live in Midland and things play out very differently in Midland than they do Subiaco and some of the conversations often happen on one side. And what's interesting for me is that the Bible is written, <laughs> you know, from a Midland perspective, not from a Subiaco perspective, which um, makes it awkward for a lot of people I think yeah well I think it is that thing. are we doing apologetics for saying no. horrific things no like, I don't think we are yeah. I think it could sound like that but that, I don't think it is I think I think we're doing despite our you know we're making an argument for action rather than speech being mm. a relevant factor mm. I think people who have had real life and death struggles rarely worry too much about what they're called. Yeah. It's a it's a safe perspective. It's something that you can worry about when other things are fixed. Mm. And then you should worry about it. If you if there are no other problems in your life, then you can focus on these things. Yeah. But I don't think you should pretend that they are something other than what they are. Mm. And what they are 
I think it's just a much better argument. If somebody says something awful in a situation where they don't have direct power over you, in a situation where they're not in control of you, you say, that really hurt my feelings. Mm. That was such an unpleasant thing to say. It made me feel gross and unpleasant and sad and it reminded me that I am powerless in a world where other people have power over me in this way Mm. and I don't like it. That is a much better argument than people get murdered by people who use that term. Mm. I think it's a more human argument and I think it's a more powerful argument. Mm. If you were to um, leave people who do read the Jewish and Christian sacred texts um, seeking a way to turn the world upside down, and wanting more action that actually does um, liberate and create a different kind of world than the one that we inhabit that is animated by the dictates of different pharaohs um, uh, but not the cries of those making bricks. What out of your experience um, as a, a comedian, as a woman, as... Somebody from Sydney, I, I don't, like you answer from whatever location um, you'd like to, but what would you offer as a gift in terms of lenses to read sacred texts from your own experience? From my own experience, that's interesting because my, my approach to them has always been more academic and historical mm. as an outsider. I think if you are sort of situated inside those texts and they're your rule book or your your way of, of approaching the world, understanding the world, I think it's always about looking for the humanity. Hmm. I I believe that The, the medium is in part the message. I think how you deliver a message is as important to whether the message is received as the truth of the message. Is this an argument for bar mitzvahs? <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Put it in a party. Put it in yeah. a joke. I, a good example of this, uh, as I was walking with a friend and a car jumped the curb and nearly hit me. And this woman stopped her car. It was one of those big four-wheel drives, Sydney car. And my friend said, you nearly hit my friend. Look where you're going. And you could see in her face that she was shocked and, and chastened. And then he said, you fucking bitch. Wow. And her face closed. It went from a moment where she was able to listen to a moment where she couldn't hear what he was saying and not only couldn't she hear what he was saying, she couldn't hear what he had just said and what she had just heard. Mm. It became a different scenario. It became a different message entirely. And that's a really good example for me and I know I lean too far towards diplomacy sometimes and it can come at the cost of the brutality of truth. Mm. But I do think you have to be careful when you're saying a message about what people are hearing. What you're saying and what people are hearing are not necessarily the same thing. Mm. You need to understand who you are to them, what your language is to them, what what uh, flavour will be imparted by their relationship to you mm. or non-relationship to you. One of those things that used to go around in the 90s of, you know, 80% of communication is not about the language at all. It's about body language and subtle cues and all of that and social relationships and hierarchies of power and status and all of that. Yeah, you're just doing some slapstick, which doesn't work on audio, Jared. (laughs) I'm I'm new to this, Alice. I don't have a... (laughs) I would say if you are particularly if you're evangelical in your beliefs, if you want to persuade other people of your beliefs, you need to... How am I going? (laughs) (laughs) 
You've gone further than most people. Uh, you, uh, I think you need to um, figure out how to get them to stand in your shoes, mm. to see the world from your perspective. Mm. So, it, again, yeah, it's about the humanity of it. It's about bringing somebody, and I mean, I think this is what I try to do with my comedies. You bring people into give people enough information so they can stand in your shoes and then you put your face right next to their face and then you point at the horizon so that they can see your eyeline, so mm. they can follow your perspective and you go with them rather than trying to put them in a place or, or mm -hmm. tell them where to go. Mm. You have to kind of go alongside them. Mm. And is that your concern around the word police stuff? is that it doesn't have much, it doesn't ask much in terms of empathy. It sets down a bunch of rules. Like there isn't an, an imaginative process to invite people into to empathise. Instead, it, it's... Um, it discounts context. It discounts... It imposes a view of the world that doesn't exist. It expects people to understand what you understand as an educated person, as a person who's au fait with this movement, a person who's allied with certain things. It's, it expects people to know through some osmosis the right way to be. Mm. It expects people to recognise your truth by instinct rather than understanding where they are coming from. Mm. You know, that, that you should understand that other people have full humanity. Like, that seems like an obvious thing to say, but it's <laughs> never been true. In any point in human history, we've never had that. Mm. We've even, uh, you know, let's take gay rights, for example. The idea that, that gay people are completely the same as us. They just have a slightly different you know, chemistry in their brain or whatever it happens to be. There's the current thing in the US, some very leftist woman is being called out on blog posts she wrote more than five years ago. She's denying them. But she's being held to account for beliefs that she used to have, that she now clearly doesn't hold, as though contexts were not important. Hmm. But where does that... Where does that apply when you have, for example, a gay kid being brought up in rural New South Wales who is homophobic? Mm. Are they expected to know by instinct that they're fine and normal? No, they come to that realisation later. You don't hold them to account ten years later when they're happy and comfortable in their own skin for the fact that when they were 13 they were, like, praying that they wouldn't be gay. Mm. You know, you should have known that there wasn't a problem with that, you know. What do you mean? There's no, there's no empathy in that. There's no understanding that somebody might not have all the information and even if they have all the same information, they might not agree. Hmm. And that the relevant thing is how they treat other people as people. So, yeah, I, I, don't, un, I, don't, I don't know what I'm saying here. Well... Other than that we're very quick tradition. to put people in the bin. Yeah. For things that we could just talk to them about. We have the desire to attribute malicious intent mm. when the reality is it's probably not there. Mm. The tradition you grew up with would say don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Yes. The tradition I grew up with would say, do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. Yeah. I think both are pretty important and both require that imaginative empathy of entering into the experience of another um, with compassion. That's enough of me quoting scriptures. As, as we finish, is there, is there a passage of scripture that you would like to read um, and comment on? from the Jewish or Christian scriptures. Ooh, Here's a Bible I prepared uh, earlier. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Um, let me see. There's, it's been a while since I, I read. I don't like Abraham. Because <laughs> you know the story of Hagar? Yes, I don't. Yeah. 
I thought he wasn't a very nice man. He's, um, he's definitely as problematic as I am, Alice. I like some King Solomon. Can we do some King Solomon giving good judgments? Well, I think the thing with King Solomon or is Queen that... Or Queen Sheba's sexy legs. The, the fascinating thing with Solomon is that he's um, he's just a Jewish pharaoh. Mm. And in fact, the text that you've got open there, um, uh, all this stuff, it, like, actually lists um, that... Look here. Uh, here is the account of the forced labour King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's Temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo and Geza. Which is subtle, but for those who actually um, have this narrative as what animates their imagination, that's a massive joke. Like the punchline uh, there is, uh, you know, the God who hears the cries of slaves? Yeah, Solomon uses slaves to build the God who hears the cries of slaves a temple and then becomes uh, an arms dealer and these are bases and the uh, Greek way of saying uh, Megiddo is Armageddon. It's one of the, it's where a lot of wars throughout history were fought. And um, it's basically the biggest takedown of, this is Jewish people going, hey, when we try and do Pharaoh, it's not any better than Pharaoh. This was a bad move. But yeah, people love Solomon. Let's re- read the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon. Okay. <laughs> Just because I like it. (laughs) And I assure you, I think I'm like 10 interviews in now and no one's gone, you know what, where I want to go in scripture, I want to be doing a little bit of Queen of Sheba. So this is definitely a first. (laughs) When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. School marmish, I like it. Um, <laughs> arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. <laughs> when the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. I mean, this is basically hubba, hubba. the Fast and the Furious. <laughs> <laughs> Look at my sweet ride. <laughs> Uh, She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were there so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. She knows how to trade. Yep, she does. And that's, you know, words of wisdom. uh, uh, I like that. I like that she wanted to talk to him. I think the, the lesson for me there is, if we want to take it for modern times, is... Check Bring for yourself. Spices. Bring spices. Bring. <laughs> pockets full of cinnamon yep. and ask the questions for yourself. Don't That's just go on what other people are saying. Mm. You've got to see for yourself whether something's good or not. And maybe that's bringing it back to Buddhist doctrine as well. <laughs> there was a um, famous discourse that the Buddha gave where somebody said, why should we believe you? We have gurus and wise men coming through the town every day why should we believe you and he said don't just try what I say and see if it if it's true mm. and, and I think that's a useful lesson mm. I think if something is good then you can find that out for yourself rather than taking someone else's word for it. Yeah. And likewise, if something is bad, see for yourself if it really is bad. Don't just jump on a bandwagon. Mm. But definitely bring cinnamon. Yeah, that's right. Nutmeg. So many Works spices, man. Works. A bit, a bit of cumin. Um, yeah, it's fascinating because the, the story of 
Solomon and how that text is supposed to impress is like, look, here's somebody from Ethiopia who's come royalty, who's come all the way and thinks our leader is legit and uh, loves our leader's wisdom. And, and First Kings starts off with the same language that, and it's super subtle, um, the same language that is used of um, the second creation myth in in Genesis of a tree of good and evil Mm. and the same language in Hebrew is used of Solomon's own wisdom um, that he was given basically what um, the fruit provided and so it's a this is everybody's hero but those who know how to read between the text all the language that is used is language that actually um, reveals the leader for what he is so for some people Solomon is a hero and it's fascinating when you go into a lot of mega churches they'll use the language a lot welcome to the house of God it's a language that was used of Solomon's temple while the New Testament uses language of um, uh, we are the ecclesia the, the church we are the house of God of which Christ was cornerstone the, which the builders rejected mm. um, and that is part of the constant play in scripture that you can take certain nice lessons that you can turn into little flip charts of daily motivations and pick-me-ups and um but it is like the queen of sheba is this incredible story of a woman of power in the ancient world um and starts and hugely important for ethiopian christians as well which was one of the the first um nations in the world uh, uh to become christian like um the, the Christianity was African before it was European mm. and people tend to forget that in their reading as well but Solomon I don't know uh, like he's... Oh, look, Solomon has his ups and his downs uh, I like the sort of legislative parts of Solomon <laughs> making some hard calls and as understanding as, human nature as far as um, slave traders and uh, arms dealers go Solomon is is definitely the only um, Hebrew king that can play that game. No one else is. Uh... My my, I think my favourite of of it is is queen is is the Queen of Sheba because she is. She's got the spices. She's she's maybe I just like her because she's an academic. <laughs> yeah. Like she wants to, yeah. she wants to ask him some tough questions. Yeah. She doesn't send a letter. She comes for herself to see it. Yeah. She pays him out, but she wants to. She doesn't want him to teach her. Mm. She wants to challenge him. Mm. Like that's why she's come. I like that. Is there that bit about someone making the floor really shiny so he could see her legs? Maybe that's in another text. Never mind. I, I do not remember that from Sunday school, but you, you might have a, a little bit of. Um, this is the problem of having read them all at about the same time, is they get a bit kind of fun mixed up in my yeah. head. Uh, if you're listening to this and you can remember the bit about someone shining up a floor so they could see the Queen of Sheba's legs. Hubba hubba. Or maybe it was somebody else's legs. I just remember it being like a, a bit troubling. A pretty big me too moment in scripture yes like... a bit of bit of upskirting that they polished the marble floor so they could see if her legs were shiny maybe it's the quran because there was so, there was said that we, she you know, was so beautiful but that she was secretly uh, must be the quran secretly a jinn uh, and you could tell because she would have had hairy legs and so he checked by making the floor really shiny I think that's a thing. I could have just had it in a dream. It could have just been a dream that I had. <laughs> that, uh, but I remember it very vividly, so it must have been a good dream. Even as a dream, there is much to mine in our dreams, for, whether it's, <laughs> it's a collective dream from a society past or your own. There's, uh, there's stuff worth sitting down with a therapist. If and you can tell through. me what book that passage is in. Then yeah, yeah, what's the price? What, Email um, me at alicerfraser at gmail.com and I'll be very grateful. My, the prize is can, my gratitude. Can I get some free content from your Patreon page? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a free ticket to one of my shows. Oh, there we go. Or I'll send you a download link of The Resistance, which is about my Jewish granny. I, that's an amazing gift. 
Hey, Alice, thanks for your time. Thank you. Um, handshake. <laughs> Silent handshake. Have we ever shook hands I don't think we've ever life? shaken hands. It's always... You have a, a, a great handshake. Thank that's, you. Um, that's the Cambridge educated handshake right there. <laughs> it's, it's one that says, um, this is not a power game, but I know who I am. Yeah, it says I'm in, I'm in some secret cult, but unless you recognise the handshake, you won't know which one it is. <laughs> Uh, shiny legs, me too, Colt. Yeah, yep. shiny legs. I really remember it. I'm sure it exists. I just don't know where. I'll so find this it. This will teach you for having such a brilliant education. <laughs> this is what you get. Well, I mean, how well do you remember books you read when you were 12? I barely read when I was 12. I'm dyslexic. Ah, so that took me... A long time. A, a, a while longer, yeah. Um, so... Well, because there weren't many. There weren't many. They stuck in your mind. You read them slowly. Yeah, I was one of those kids that read books in trees like an idiot. I've never been called Jared McKenna. That's not true. That's certainly not true today. You're um, you're cool in Jared's books. Thank you. And on that awkward moment... (laughs) Fist bump. (laughs) The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. 